coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. As I started coming out of the depression that I was experiencing, I started to feel. And it was it was kind of like for the first time since I could remember being a little kid, I started feeling feelings. And when you're doing that, you like it's so important to not judge yourself, not kick yourself, to stop thinking that people are judging you for how you look and what you say. And to have that honesty with what you're going through so that you can feel it and let it move through you. So when I think about radical honesty, there's so many aspects of it. It's, it's in relation to your body, your mind, all of the relationships you have. Can you bring that radical honesty with you in every moment? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame. I am your host. And today we have David Procession. David grew up in the suburbs of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. In his late teens, he started feeling chronically tired. He experienced near constant pain in his gut and chronic tension around his head. He eventually came to realize they were all symptoms of significant depression and anxiety. He tried to hide his feelings from everyone and the hiding caused him to dissociate and be plagued with social anxiety. He began to search for something different to help him heal and started dabbling with meditation and yoga. At 22, he desperately needed to get out of the spiraling feeling he was experiencing and took a trip to South Africa as a journey of self-discovery. The experience found him seeking deep exploration far off the beaten path. When he came home, he felt changed and he wasn't willing to live in the same way as before. He moved to Victoria and found his people. He got deep into yoga, pranayama, meditation, and holotropic breathwork. He started doing yoga training and found even greater depth and healing with silent retreats. In 2008, he created doyogawithme.com, which aimed to provide online yoga that was accessible to all. Since then, doyogawithme.com has grown from a few thousand visitors a year to over a million people all over the planet. I had such a wonderful time with David. He is a deeply spiritual man who has this amazing calm demeanor, and I know it was hard fought. His story of transformation and creating doyogawithme.com is beautiful. And he also provided all of our listeners with a discount code that will be available for one month after the publishing date of this episode. Listen till the end to get your discount code. All right, let's get into it. Please enjoy David Procession. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Ashley. It's a it's an honor. This is very very exciting. And uh, we were talking earlier a little bit about 
before the podcast started about our authentic being authentic. I think it's a good segue into a conversation about authenticity. I saw a article you wrote about Satya and that this it's like radical honesty, radical truth telling. I'm wondering, you know, we're going to move backwards into your background and where you come from. But I'm wondering, tell me a little bit about what it felt like to write an article about authenticity and radical truth telling. Is that a big part of your world? I actually went through a lot of really interesting parts of my life before I came to this podcast because I knew that I would end up talking about a lot of it. And one of the important pieces was as I started coming out of the depression that I was experiencing, I started to feel. And it was it was kind of like for the first time since I could remember being a little kid, I started feeling feelings. And when you're doing that, you like it's so important to not judge yourself, not kick yourself, to stop thinking that people are judging you for how you look and what you say. And to have that honesty with what you're going through so that you can feel it and let it move through you. So when I think about radical honesty, there's so many aspects of it. It's it's in relation to your body, your mind, all of the relationships you have. Can you bring that radical honesty with you in every moment? That's That's basically the way that I look at it. Was radical honesty a part of your childhood? Was that something that you were taught when you were little? No, no, it's it was pretty much the opposite. My parents were, you know, they grew up in small town Saskatchewan, where which is where I grew up in Saskatoon. So it's a it's a prairie town similar to Montana. They didn't really encourage open emotional discussions about life. And when, you know, I I felt like I was alone a lot and I felt like I wasn't being heard a lot. And one of those experiences was wanting desperately to connect and talk about feelings. And it just wasn't, it wasn't really a part of that environment when I was a kid. Did that lead you to believe that feelings were unacceptable in the world? Or it sounds like you wanted to be heard and wanted to express these feelings, which sometimes in homes where feelings aren't expressed, people, they get a desire to actually suppress them and get rid of them because they're a liability. But it sounds like it didn't make your feelings feel like a liability. It just made you want to find a place to let them go. Yeah. Keep in mind at that age, all of that is is pretty unconscious. Like for sure. Those those desires, I bottled them up. And I didn't say to myself, I'm bottling these up. They just happened. And it was it's a survival technique. In order to survive, I needed to do it. So I would numb the feelings. And that resulted in me acting out a lot. I was (laughs) I was a kid who threw a lot of tantrums, let's put it that way. When I didn't get what I want, I I threw a tantrum. I have many, many memories of, you know, losing at a family game and just losing my mind, throwing stuff. You know, the classic picture of the kid lying on his back and slamming his fists and feet into the ground. That was me mm-hmm. while I was while I was screaming. And what would your parents say about what was the message that you got about that behavior, about who you were as a result of that? It was a pretty hard line approach. There was no attempt to understand where that was coming from or why. And it was it was basically in their way. They were saying, don't do that. You know, don't do that. Take it. Take some time to yourself and come back when you're feeling better. When did the fatigue start? 
That was late teens. How did you know it was different than, you know, normal teenage moody tiredness? What would have marked it as different and more related to depression and anxiety? Yeah. So at the time, I didn't know what it was, but I was chronically tired. Like I I had chronic pain in my guts. I had chronic tension around my head. I, you know, by the time I was 20, I remember doing everything I could to stay awake during the day. Like I'd be sitting with friends or a friend just having a conversation and all my body wanted to do was sleep. And so I fought against it and I, and I fought to hide it from everyone. And because, because I didn't really know how to look into that kind of thing, like how to ask questions, how to be curious about what was happening. I also didn't have the experience that made it possible for me to share this experience. I didn't share it with anyone. I didn't think it was possible. I thought I was the only one going through it. And it just, it was my, it was my cross to bear. And, you know, I actually, I went to a doctor because I thought I had mononucleosis and it came up negative. And the doctor said, you're a healthy young lad, just go out there and take on life. And I didn't feel that way. So the common experience is that you cannot get out of bed in the morning. It takes everything you've got to get out of bed and your appetite gets suppressed and your, your willingness to participate in life gets dampened, you know, and gets numbed. And my, I, I specifically had really intense experience in social situations. Like I would, I had two that I remember being kind of mysteries to me, even until today, I started experiencing disassociation. Like my, my mind would step back. And it was because I was so hyper analytical about what I was saying. Every word that came out of my mouth felt like, oh, they're paying attention to this. It's stupid. Why did you say that? The dumbest thing you could have said. And then my, my mind started stepping back and looking at my body and judging it. It's like, you're terrible. And it was the weirdest experience. Like it was actually separation from my mind and body. And because of that, I would sit in social situations. I would be at a pub with my friends and I would be silent for an hour just because I, I could not get the will to say anything. Did people comment on that? What was the reaction from people around you who maybe knew you better? Yeah, I often think about that. And there wasn't like there wasn't the type of response that encouraged me to ask questions. During those times, I'm guessing that my friends just thought like I wasn't feeling sociable that day. Right, right. He's just quiet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also an introvert. Like it is, it takes a lot of effort for me to go to a pub or a bar, you know, and back then that was kind of the only thing we did. <laughs> like we just went out and had beers all like I played sports and I went out and had beers and then we, we did school. Those were kind of, and we watched movies. Those, that's kind of what we did. And if you didn't, there was so much pressure to go out and join your troop on the weekends that if I stayed home with my family, with my parents on a Friday night, like I would just, I would suffer so much because I would be the biggest loser in my head. It's incredible when we think about how much of our experience is just in our head, right? How many, how, how often we are creating an experience that might not be existing for people around us. And one of the most amazing uh, techniques that I've heard about, about the critical voice, which is what you're 
you're talking about this critical voice that's telling us we're not worthy and telling, you know, how we talk to ourselves is if you held up a mirror, you took that critical voice and you spoke to yourself that way. And then you took that same critical voice and spoke to a child that way. Would that be okay? Would we ever speak? Would we ever take that critical voice of our own and speak to anyone else the way that we speak to ourselves? And most of the time, the answer is no. I mean, certainly not a child, a loved one, but we've, we have made it acceptable to treat ourselves that way. And when we treat ourselves and we have that critical voice, it's really hard to have a sense of well-being and kindness and that the world is a safe and happy place. And I think that's then you get the depression, the anxiety and all of the things that kind of cascade into, into you know, a, a small existence. Yeah. One of the biggest realizations I had was that I exist in relationships. If I didn't have any relationships, like there's no existence without relationships. And those relationships include yourself. The primary purpose of life is to nurture them and create positive ones, create ones that make you feel stronger and brighter and happier and cared for and that make you want to feel like getting up in the morning. When we talk about introverts and extroverts, I think that our society, and I I don't know if you would agree with this, that our society puts a higher value on extroverts than introverts in terms of, you know, the way that we talk about extroversion versus introversion. I think one of the coolest things about introversion is that because you have less bandwidth for relationships, for other people, for this incoming stimuli, you are probably more careful with how you, who you choose to have them with, because there's more uh, exclusive uh, energy giving opportunity. Whereas with extroverts, I think a lot of the time we find ourselves in relationships with people that we might not even really like, but we're trying to have connection and that, you know, and that it's just kind of like part of that extroversion. And and I see introverts as having these deeper, more meaningful relationships because they just don't have the room for the nonsense. Is that something that, that you experience at all, at least today? Yeah. I, I mean, it's taken a long time. I'm almost 50 now. And I finally come to the place where I believe that I can make choices that are best for me. And the, the, the quality of the connection that I have with people really, really matters. And it's, it's a result of a lot of different things. It's meeting the right people, you know, because if you don't have those kind of connections, you don't know they're possible. And then, of course, like having a family, there's nothing that challenges you more than raising kids. And they taught me a lot about what, I guess, the the kind of relationship that I want with people in my life. And I'm a great believer in, you know, putting a certain kind of energy out there and you're going to get it back. If I put the energy out there that I want, like, this is what I want the world to be, I'm going to discover those people. And so I do, I have a great circle of friends now. That's awesome. Tell me, you, you, you know, you started to have this, this chronic fatigue and eventually you said, I got to get out of this town and you took off and started traveling. Tell me about traveling and what traveling did for you. What was that experience like? Yeah. So when I was in my early twenties, I, I just felt a deep need to be somewhere else to do something different. And I, for some reason, I just had this craving to go to Africa. And I don't really like, there was no reason why I would, I have no connection there. There was just something about it that made me want to go. And then my, my mom happened to work with 
a South African doctor in Saskatoon. She connected me with him. And then I sat with him and his wife and we we worked out a plan, a six-month plan for me to travel through Southern Africa. He happened to be going there. So he was my contact point. And he had so many friends and family there that I could stay with or stay connected with. This was in 1996. So it was, it was two years after apartheid ended. So it was it was an intense time. And I saw this as like, it was a, a journey of self-discovery. Like I really needed to get to know why I felt the way I did. And backpacking through Southern Africa for some reason seemed to be the right thing to do. And so what I did was I, I made three rules for myself. With transportation, I either hitchhiked or I used black transport. In South Africa, everything is divided, was at least divided according to your skin color, clearly on signs everywhere. So I chose to either hitchhike or use black transportation. I only went on walking or canoe safaris. I didn't do the Jeep safaris. I didn't want to do the touristy thing. And I went off the beaten track as much as I could to places that weren't necessarily destinations. I had a combination of naivete and courage. <laughs> mm -hmm. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, but at the same time, I, I thought nothing's going to go wrong. Like I'm, I have good intentions. This is going to work out. Well, when I told people that I was hitchhiking, some of the locals thought I was crazy because they would, they would say there are so many, there's so much violence in this country, so many carjackings. And my, the friend that I was using as a guide, he just said, you got to know where, where to go and where not to go. And a lot of that, a lot of that is just gut feeling, right? You, you know, what feels right and what doesn't. And I also, like, I know I put myself in danger. My poor mom. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. She's like, you have to call me every every two weeks. And sometimes I would forget and she would like I'd probably have trouble sleeping those nights that I wasn't calling. But I would like I, I remember looking at a map and of course, on a map, you don't see what's between two points. And I would throw my backpack on and I would leave the hostel on foot. And I would just go from one point to the highway where I could put my thumb up. And I'd be walking under bridges. I'd be walking through areas that only Black people are setting up these counters where they're selling their goods. I would walk past shanty towns, you know, like a, a full-on city worth of shanty towns. These are like structures that are built of whatever they had with the corrugated iron roofs. I had with me two books as my guide. One of them was called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunru Suzuki. And the other one was the Bible. And I'm not Christian. It was just like I would flip open a page and I'd say, okay, what do I need today? And I would read it. And Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind gave me the perspective that allowed me to live in the moment and trust. Trust that what my decisions were good and that things would turn out okay. A lot of people take traveling journeys. I, I you know, certainly had a few of those, but I, I wasn't on foot. Like I didn't have rules for myself that way. I wasn't, I, I didn't have a, a guiding book. It was just like, I'm going to go and do these things and see these things. And it had a transformative effect, but from the outside, it looked like young person traveling. When you describe your travel, it's very intentionally transformative and very rooted in this idea that you are going to find what you're looking for, even though you don't know really what you're looking for with the books, with the rules. What did you discover through that journey? Yeah, it's one of the things that I know now that I didn't know then. I mean, a lot of the experience 
was painful because I was so lonely and I didn't meet a lot of people that had, that were like-minded. So I, you know, I really only traveled with people a few times. I was alone a lot. And because I had so much time, so much freedom, I would wake up in the morning and that's when I would decide what I was going to do often that day. And it, it was, it was an amazing feeling of freedom. When I look back on it, that, that pain of loneliness and discomfort and tension and sadness and anxiety, that was part of the process. I mean, you can't, it was part of, is part of the unnumbing, I guess is what, is the way you could put it. It's interesting when, when you talk about letting go of anxiety or depression or something that is a deeply felt experience that has been a part of you for a long time, when you start to feel those feelings, it doesn't feel good. Part of the reason why you're going through depression is because you're pushing them away. You're rejecting them and you're hating them. I was hating them. I hated being that way. So the reason why it's so hard is because you are opening up and feeling that garbage. Everything that makes you feel like you're an ugly person is there. So during those six months, I had a lot of time to sit with it and just feel it. And I genuinely came back home a different person, completely different. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't totally healed, but I had finally cracked it open and started feeling those feelings. And I also couldn't have said, this is what I did. You know, this is why I feel this way. There was no conscious process to it all. Now I can see it, but I felt different. And I knew when I got back, this is, I'm on the right path now. What was that path that you were on when you came back? I think coming back to that brutal honesty, that's what it's about is it's so I was then on a path of learning, deep learning, and I understood what deep learning is. It's actually it's one of the difficult, most difficult things to do to look at yourself in a simple way without fear without distortion, without judgment. And I realized that that's, that, that is what I'm going to devote my life to now, being curious with empathy and with the intention to understand so that I didn't, so I didn't feel so, so much pain all the time. How do you know that you are looking at a correct, if you, I'm trying to think of a better word than correct, but how do you know if you are looking at an accurate version of yourself in terms of that radical honesty, right? Because what I say is like, if the calls are coming from inside the house, how do you know what is real and what isn't? How did you flesh those two things out? I think that you need to be careful not to label things intellectually when you're experiencing them, because Everything, every thought you have and every feeling you have has value and it's there for a reason. So the way that I approach it is that you want to be able to take in the totality of who you are and not, not treat anything different than anything else. And if you can do that, then the, so the goal for me is to let things move through rather than hold on. And the only way you can do that is by feeling it all, understanding that the way I respond to this thought or this feeling defines whether it sticks around or not. So if I can bring a sense of complete awareness, complete humility, humility is so key with this because you got to be able to accept all of it. 
It's all there. It's in the present moment. It's there for a reason. Can I feel it bring empathy to it and let it move through me rather than holding on? Because that all of the judgment and fear and the labeling, not only does it make it stick around, it's, it, it empowers it. What would be an example of something that you were resisting that you let in and let move through you? Well, that, that one's easy because I've, I've lived with for some reason, just this crazy chronic tension in my body. And I've been on a number of silent meditation retreats that are 10 days long. And so you, you basically sit for 11 hours a day for 10 days. And there's a technique, but you're just with yourself that whole time. You're feeling, you're moving, you're scanning your body over and over and over again, scanning your body over and over again. And every time I passed my belly, I was like, why? Why do I have this crazy gripping tension there? And I even asked the the meditation leader and he's like, it doesn't matter. Just feel it and move on. Are you allowed to ask questions? Yeah. So, so there are given times every evening, like I think maybe half an hour where you can ask the question from Got the it. teacher. Okay. And so I just started to realize that nothing, nothing inside of you is permanent. Nothing. If you open up to every feeling, every sensation, every experience that you have, all of it is always in flux, always moving. We're living beings. And so we need to have the type of awareness that matches that. We need to have the type of awareness that is allowing things to move through us, no matter what it is. You want to have direct, mindful connection to your body and your mind. And you want to be able, I wanted to be able to let that stuff move through. And it's the attachment that makes it stay. So on an intellectual level, I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm, I am aware of the impermanence of our situation of, of being human, but on a day-to-day basis, a lot of how I respond to the world is as if this is the way it's going to be. And a lot of the emotional responses that will come up automatically to any kind of change are ones that you would think I didn't understand that there was impermanence, if that makes sense. How do you take this information and synthesize it into something that you can actually experience and add value to your daily life? The intellectual doesn't really help here. It's all about the direct experience, the feeling. And so the more you think about it, the more it kind of takes you off track. And if you have an outcome, that also takes you off track. To me, it's always been about feeling what's there and letting that be the teacher. That's your guide. Your role is to bring utter humility and compassion into that experience of the moment. There's no other way to learn about yourself that is outside of the present. How did yoga play a part in this spiritual awareness? Oh, yoga was formative. Like I, the practice of yoga itself has a way of making me open up and feel my body and, and, and quiet the mind. The greatest impact for me was pranayama. It's a, a breath training practice. Pranayama is about like the, the purpose is to move prana through your body. And so if you practice pranayama and you learn, you also learn what are called the bandhas. They're like energy locks and you use the bandhas and, and the breath. The breath is incredibly powerful. You can start to get this feeling of energy moving through your body and you can start to feel the, the body on, in subtle ways. Like you can actually start to feel the energetic blocks inside of you. 
initially when I was trying to come out of my chronic anxiety and depression, and I was starting to try to understand why my body felt so much tension inside of it, I would do pranayama daily and I would sometimes do it for an hour straight. And I would just get these bursts of energy through me and and then try to understand after finishing pranayama why I couldn't continue to feel that way throughout the day because all of it would come right back. So yeah, pranayama formed, it It allowed me to, I guess in a simple way, it allowed me to see what's possible, allowed me to feel what's possible. How did you manage when it would all come, you'd have this amazing experience and, and then, you know, sometime later it would all come back. What, what's the, what have you done about that and working the depression and anxiety, either working with it or working it out of your life? It took me a long time to fully understand that they're, that separating your spiritual practice from the rest of your life doesn't really do you much good. <laughs> so I really tried hard to take the experience, the learnings, my approach in meditation or in pranayama into my daily life. So I would, you know, I would start by I'd be standing in the bank and I would still scan my body or I'd do a little breathing technique in the car. And over time, I started to as I said before, everything is relationship. And so my my greatest intention was to keep learning. And why not learn when I'm in conversation with someone or I'm making dinner? Those are all opportunities. Who brought you into yoga? Did you know about yoga when you were growing up in Saskatchewan? Yeah, I did not. <laughs> I was I was a sporting kid. I played hockey, football. I really loved the rough sports. In fact, I was small, but I, I loved the contact sports. So yoga came as a result of me seeking how to heal a back injury. I had hurt my back multiple times by the time I was 16, like bad enough to be laid out for a week or two. And it was really concerning for me to be that young and have a lower back problem. So I just, I pulled out the yellow pages <laughs> and I looked up, I can't remember what I looked up, something health related. And there was a yoga studio that came up and it was, that was the studio that introduced me to yoga. It was, it was pretty much the only studio in Saskatoon at the time. It was in a Yangar studio. If you know anything about a Yangar, they focus on alignments. Like they're very particular about alignment, lineage. They, um, it's so, yeah, it's really good. They use a lot of, a lot of props to make sure that you're doing it safely. And so my back instantly started to feel good. And so I just, I was driven to do yoga more and more. And that kind of, that started my path. I did yoga with a number of different teachers, moved out to the West Coast, did a teacher training and and the rest is history. What does it all look like today? What's what's the path that you've taken and the recovery that you share with regard to living a life today that's very, very full with responsibilities and a business and all these things? How do you maintain that peace? Yeah. How do you how do you live a normal everyday life? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing. A lot of it is just being aware and kind with yourself. The way that I like to look at mindfulness and meditation 
is I, I consider it to be a reductive process. Mindfulness is what remains when you remove all distractions. It's our natural way of being is just to be present. And we put all of this stuff, our mind is putting all this stuff in the way all the time. I'm wondering if the, what triggers you towards wanting to drink is similar to what triggers me to be depressed. Like I, I absolutely have a deep, dark urge to curl up in my bed and stay there forever. Like it's still there. I want to hide. It's easy, right? It's, it's like, I don't want to face all the issues of life and it can get triggered by little, you know, a little bit of fear, something that I didn't like happens. And I just want to, that, that depression can be triggered. I'm wondering if the actual visceral feeling for you is similar. Like, do you, what is that trigger like? And how does it, how does it try to draw you in? Well, I suffer from depression the way that you do that crawling up, that chronic, chronic fatigue. I've described it as like everything, even the stuff that you know is fun and that you know you want to do still feels like an enormous amount of effort. Just the, the this like absolutely heroic amount of effort to do normal things that you know that shouldn't take this much effort. For me at this stage, a trigger to drink is typically if I've been sitting in that. So it's a mechanism for relief from the chronic depression, the chronic anxiety that just wears you down bit by bit by bit. If I start to drop into the depression initially, the drinking doesn't occur to me right away. The drinking is the is like the escape hatch from the depression and the anxiety. My brain knows and has always known if I take a drink, no one can rely on me. I cannot be responsible for anything. It is immediate relief. And my whole life now will only revolve around this one thing, singleness of purpose. And so it's this escape hatch from chronic depression because chronic depression is this battle to function normally. But if you stop battling, if you take yourself out and you push your, you take drugs and alcohol and you push yourself into this other thing, even though it doesn't work, my brain still sees it as an escape hatch. It takes me out of all the things that are hard to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it really does. I can feel that when you're talking about it. Do you have a sense of what normal should be? Rarely. <laughs> um, and does it, does it matter? Like, does it matter what you, you talk about normalcy? Why? Why does it matter what normal is for you? I'll tell you why. Because when I went to treatment when I was a teenager and they started to describe what the experience of other people was like as just to like give me an idea of where I was in the lineup, I had no idea that some of the things I was experiencing or some of the uh, what I grew up with or, or some of these that they weren't normal. I didn't even know. I didn't even I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, you know, an easy one that I'll give you is that I did not know that normal people don't black out all the time when they drink. I literally didn't know that that wasn't a part of drinking for other people. When I was given that information, like, hey, most normal people are not blacking out when they drink. It gave me perspective on how far I had come. Now, some normal people black out when they drink happens sometimes, oops, accident, whatever. But again, it gives me a range. And so knowing what the normal range is gives me an idea of how close 
I am and and what I need to curtail in order to be in that lane. And then when I know where I stand, I can either change it or allow myself to just continue say like, you know what, my extreme nature works here and it doesn't matter and I don't need to be normal here. I find knowing what normal is to be extremely helpful as a as a barometer to guide me to the place I want to be, not necessarily to take me to the, to normal. Right. That's interesting. I I relate to what is known, like what what you consider to be how you believe you work and the world works. And for me, that has done me so little service throughout my life. I don't know if do you relate it to that to that, that way. It's like you're you're talking about how realizing a new normal can can really be can provide you an epiphany or an awakening in that moment. It's like, yeah, some other people experience it this other way. And I've I have felt like throughout my life, the more I can let go of my concept of normal, the more like when I was talking about that reductive process, it's like stop putting labels on things. Stop creating judgments of everything. You start experiencing things for what they are, label-free, judgment-free, fear-free, then that direct connection with yourself, your relationship with yourself and with others, it has it has a quality about it that I guess to put it simply, it it allows the learning process to happen. Like you you see it and you feel it in a way that is new and fresh all the time. That beginner mind, that that Zen mind. And that's you remove the intellectual piece and it all becomes about the moment and that experience. Of course, the past is still there and the future, the outcomes that you want, all of it's still there, except that the judgment isn't there and you're relating to life in a way, like I said earlier, allows it to move through. Everything's impermanent. Just be with it, but don't get attached. I don't know if that that made sense to you. It makes huge sense. It is something that I can experience for 30 seconds max. The intellectualizing is my cross to bear. It's very, very difficult for me to release the labels and the distractions that you're talking about, which is, of course, the case with most people and their their monkey mind. It just seems like other people are able to get there faster. But I also have benefited greatly from using labels in therapeutic processes in order to understand where I fit in the world, which I didn't understand. And so I wonder what I was thinking about when you were talking about that was, I wonder if using labels, using the barometer, using all those things served me really well for a long time, which it did. And if that's something that in this next chapter, in the next phase is now something you can let go of. There's this saying that says, learn and follow the rules so that when you're an expert, you can break them. And so maybe it was I had to learn and follow these guidelines and these labels so that once I'm sober a long time, once I have once those things have served me, I can actually let go of them and see the world from a completely different perspective. Do you think that there's ever a place 
for labels or categories, categorizing or any kind of measurement in the mind that fits in with mindfulness? Or is it incompatible? You can look around in the room and you see someone and that person's labeled person, right? In your mind, that's a human being. So that's a label. You see a wall, that's a wall. Yeah, yeah, that's a label. The wall's a label, the floor's a label, the mat's a label. All of these things serve purposes for you so that you don't wake up someday and you're like, what is what is all this stuff around me? I don't even know what to call it. So there's a functional purpose. Let's look at what the what labels do. Like if you if you see a tree and then you label it maple tree, what maple tree does, for me at least, is it defines what a maple tree is. And that in a way kills curiosity. It kills creativity. Because if you create an endpoint for yourself, labels can do that. If you create an endpoint for yourself, then that's where the learning stops. You just need to be careful of that. Labels serve a purpose for you. You know, we we talked about that. It's a functional, there's a functional purpose to them. But labels, this might be a bit of a strong word, but they're dangerous in the way that if you label yourself as someone who's depressed, that can in itself stop you from learning why. Because you've already, someone has told you what depression is, you know what depression is, but there's a visceral, deep experience of depression that could be completely different than what other people write on paper. That's the danger, is the way that I see it. I think the greater context is asking yourself, is this label getting in the way of me learning? Mm-hmm. You know, because I, there are so many, like I struggle with this all the time. Like I've labeled my son. He is a terrible loser. He does not like to lose. I hope he never listens to this podcast, but he already knows. He does not, when he loses a game that he's playing with me, <laughs> he just freaks out. So in my head, we're playing a game together. He's already labeled that. And I'm, I'm waiting for the outcome. And to me, that's going to be the outcome. <laughs> and this is re- in relation to thousands of moments throughout my life. Mm-hmm. You have these labels based on memory that when, when the label's applied, doesn't allow you to consider alternatives. And I think that that's like a, a crucial opportunity for us to learn why the label is there and how to let go of it and learn what other possibilities there are. Like with my son, maybe I'm not learning how to talk to him in a way that leads him down a different path. Like maybe I have a role to play that I haven't learned yet. You're jogging my memory. There was this child psychologist who teaches a parenting class and she talks about, I wish I could remember her name. She talks about for every out, kind of what you're talking about, for every outburst, for every label, you would, you would turn it into a question. So my child is a sore loser. Why is my child a sore loser? Or like, why do I think this? Or what do you think created that? I have found that to be extremely helpful with my kids and the labels that I might otherwise give them, which has helped me in all sorts of ways from thinking that they had some sort of permanent mental state and finding out that they were overtired and that the nap times were wrong. You know, things like asking that question instead of the label, asking, becoming curious as opposed to deciding has created those opportunities to learn and to continue to learn. And I think that is something I very much hold on to and can, can grasp is like 
turn it all into a question. Like that's a maple tree. Is it a maple tree? What is it, you know, what makes a maple tree? Are there different types of maple trees? Having the, having just like a deep curiosity allows me to feel a spiritual connection because I'm always curious about how the maple tree works. But, you know, like I, I have a deep curiosity. And so I think that that curiosity is like that piece I can relate to so much and, and it helping me to learn and to be better and to find a deeper sense of who I am and more importantly, who who I want or need to be today or tomorrow or, you know, that I don't need to be the exact same person I was yesterday. I can be whoever I need to be. How often are you using yoga in your life today? Do you do yoga every single day? And and what are you learning today? What is on, on the topic of that? Yeah, I have a regular yoga practice. I practice two to three times a week right now with family. Sometimes it's hard to fit it in, especially with our family, really, really busy. And I've also shifted my relationship to yoga over the years. Like yoga practice to me doesn't have to be doing a pose on a yoga mat. I think of how I'm breathing, how I'm standing, how I'm aware, what my relationships are like with friends and family. That's all yoga to me. I built a sauna in my backyard with some friends. I regularly sauna now and I I drive that heat up. Like I love to push my extremes. It's like, I think it's the residue of me desperately needing to feel feelings when I was numbing myself for so long. It's, it's very similar to sitting for 11 hours and feeling those same sensations because you're faced, you're faced to feel it. Or you step out of the sauna and you take a cold shower. But I, one of my other philosophies in life has been to take on things that are hard. When hard opportunities come, and I, you know, you need to know what's hard for yourself. Like for one, one example is I, I joined Toastmasters being a, being a social anxiety introvert. That was like public speaking. I, I preferred death. So I forced myself to do it. And for me, it was a spiritual practice. Every time I went to a meeting, it was a spiritual step forward. To me, that's what yoga is. It's, it's having that state of mind and making decisions that lead to learning about yourself and, and how you exist in the world in a way that, that feels right. How do you teach your kids these principles? When I think of being a kid, it's it's action. It's through action. Like sometimes, like my parents would sometimes try to say something to me that was instructional or trying to teach me something about life. And the my my greatest memories are are their behavior. Mm-hmm. Modeling. Modeling. Yes. Yeah, so that's really what I try to do. Sometimes I don't do it well at all, but I try to do that. That brings up a memory for me. Like I, when my son was younger, he had trouble sleeping. I was like, I'm a meditation teacher. I guide all these adults through it. I help them sleep. And that's what I was, I was doing that. Like I, at one point I was teaching 10 classes a week, you know, and, and a lot, a lot of it was around teaching adults to relax. If we have one goal in this class, it's for you to feel more relaxed when you leave. And so my son having sleep troubles, like, why can't I do this with him? So one night we just finished reading a book and he was lying there with his eyes closed and I started taking him through a guided meditation. And (laughs) I changed my voice a little bit. Like I go a little bit deeper and smoother and softer and slower. And I swear he was more, he was relaxing more. He was breathing deeper. His eyes were closed. He was listening. And after like two minutes of doing this, he says, dad, what's with the weird voice? Uh, I thought you were going to say he passed out. I wish, I wish that I had that effect on him. Yeah, I just think it's, 
it's how you live your life that other people see and take in, especially our children. And I just try to do my best with that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Where can people find you more information about you if they want to do yoga, do yoga with me? I was going to say do yoga with you. <laughs> if they want to do yoga with me.com, uh, tell us about, about where you, where you are in the world and on the internet. We are based in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. The website, as you said, is called doyogawithme.com. We've existed, as I think I said earlier, about 14 years. So we were one of the first. And our, our purpose is to make yoga accessible to as many people as we can. So about half of our content is completely free. You just have to create an account. And we want, we want it to be that way. People choose to subscribe. We have access to what we call premium content. It's kind of a an expression of paying it forward, I guess is what you could say. So they, the subscribers, support those who aren't in a as comfortable financial position to continue doing yoga for free. And we also operate as a social purpose business. All of the choices we make are made based on our impact on the planet, on people, and then on profit as well. So if you go to our website, we have over a thousand on-demand classes. We have over a hundred on-demand guided meditations. As you said, we have a blog section or no, you read that somewhere else. We have a blog section where we write all about yoga. We have challenges that you can do anywhere from seven to 30 days. We have programs that are also longer that, that address certain issues like carpal tunnel syndrome, lower back problems chronic anxiety, a lot of, we have a lot of classes on mental health. And then about three or four years ago, we branched out to create a, a separate product, which is our yoga teacher training program. And this learning platform, it's really good for creating a community feel and, and an interactive experience. So I've used that to create a program called Let Go of Anxiety. It's a 21-day program. You just have to click, if you go to Deal With Me, you click on YTT or yoga teacher training and you'll find it there. It's courses.doyogawithme.com. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, you should have heard that there's a discount code coming up and the discount code expires one month from the release date of this episode. Exactly. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. And we are going to link everything, doyogawithme.com and your yoga teacher training. So we're going to link all of that in the show notes and really, really lovely to chat with you and meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashley. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for having me on. Me too. Me too. Thank you. I went to Disneyland recently, and I believe that Disneyland should have a crew of chiropractors <laughs> <laughs> to all who are struggling with their lack of ute. Yeah, I think that's fair. And there's no there's no test of your sort of muscular endurance, you know, your posture, like standing I mean, in there line is a for test. hours and hours and hours. We had the fast pass, which is now called the Genie Plus. And you have to like book the rides. And Do my the husband... magic, does the magic powers make you feel better about cutting the line? Nope. The genie did it. I just nope. rubbed the lamp. Just my ability to withstand my family in a <laughs> waiting situation makes me feel better about cutting the line. No, it was good. It was, I love, 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 love roller coasters and was very disappointed in my body's ability to withstand G-force, if you will. Oh, shit yourself. <laughs> 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 no, I got a crick in my neck. 
Uh, no, yeah. I just I love roller coasters and my kids loved them, too. So that was good because we thought they were little bitches in the making, but they're not. And um, <laughs> they, they used to they used to not want to go on roller coasters. And Dak and I love roller coasters. And we were really had these private conversations. Of course, we were very loving and encouraging to their face. Mm, but sure. behind their back, <laughs> we need to just tell you. <laughs> Let me just tell you some some eighth grade shit. You're like these little bitches, <laughs> pansy ass. Like, what if? What are they just gonna be this way forever? And what there were gonna do? There were three, Ashley. They of weren't... course, they were three. <laughs> 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 They of course, they were three. Legal. You're only six now. <laughs> <laughs> they were only legally allowed to go on the ride because you put lifts in their shoes. They <laughs> were not even. So anyway, I went to the chiropractor the next day and the report's in. I'm aging. That was Father's Day. Love that. I think I could tell you this because my husband won't listen to this episode. Oh, boy. But oh boy. So the reason I planned Disneyland as the Father's Day thing was really an act of violence because I bitch about his idea of Mother's Day and how Ah. he plans it. This was my like act of like, this is how it's done. (laughs) But I've never said that. I didn't say that to him. And like, everyone's like, good job, wife of the year, blah, 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 blah. And I really like, I it was everything in me not to be like, are you recognizing? Do you like see that the the difference between what you do on Mother's Day and what I did on Father's Day? Do you see (laughs) anything? You notice picking anything out? I don't think he noticed. And I am too prideful to tell him, but maybe I should. Let me under, let me just, let me just define this too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is this, is this. Like it wasn't kindness that made me do it. Right. I get that part. That's clear. But is it because you wanted to show how much better what you planned was, or it was because going to an amusement park with kids is the worst kind of torture that there exists? (laughs) No, because that's the kind of thing he would want to do. And so I forked out some money and planning and whatever to do something very, very specific and thoughtful that represented him being a father, which is he got my kids into Star Wars. And so I bought him, uh, I bought everybody, I took him to dinner the night before because it's his birthday. And we gave him lightsaber chopsticks at sushi and then a card that sang a Star Wars, it was a theme, you following? And then a card to sing, you know, open it, dun, 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 whatever. And then a little note that says we're going to Disneyland tomorrow for Father's Day. And then because you introduced us as our father to Star Wars, we want to do Star Wars with you, right? So it's like a lot of thought. It actually took me like 45 minutes, but (laughs) a lot of thought into putting this together, which my point was, it was an act of violence against the Mother's Day plans that have come out of my husband. Okay. And unfortunately, all that's happened is that he thinks I'm very nice. And I just, I had to get it out. Right. I'm going to go ahead and just give you a blanket statement. Just Uh when you're trying to like get at somebody, doing everything they want is not usually getting at them. You know what I mean? Because you're not not thinking. I need to take revenge out against you, Ashley, right now. I would love to treat you to a great dinner wherever you want to go. And then we're going to 
We're going to go to no, a Rage Against got... Machine concert after that. Oh, and then so happy. and then Fred Durst is going to be in a like a one-on-one oh, greeting oh, oh. greeting session. Yeah. Got you, yeah. Ashley. No, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> it is a got you. It's the long game, my friend. It's the long game because every year I've been like, what kind of bullshit <laughs> is this? Literally. And the last two years, I've left town because mm. I was so I my listeners are no longer going to like me. <laughs> I left <laughs> and I went and hung out with my mom. I was like, I got to hang out with my mom for Mother's Day. His idea of Mother's Day is us doing a normal day with the kids. Like it's like, oh, don't you want to be with your kids on Mother's Day? No. So. I gave him the version of Father's Day knowing. And so when this shit comes around and I book myself a cruise to Jamaica alone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listen, it it was an act of war. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I get all that. And I'm just saying you might want to revisit. You don't see the tactic. You don't see the tactic, but... (laughs) Unless you can, you know, MacGyver this later on to say, Oh, I will. We got a card for you, mommy. You introduced us to the music of Bob Marley. And so we go to this cruise to Jamaica by yourself. So you could enjoy, like, you could go to his childhood home. Or you told us about diamonds. And so we got you one. Right. We got your own diamond mine. Mommy, it's for you. That's a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Questionable labor. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a real, that's a, that's a pickle I, I think I'd like to stay out of but uh I don't I'm just know saying, any... revisit revisit vengeance I'm telling you yeah my <laughs> vengeance is strange but listen I'm I'm telling you I think it's an underrated tactic kill him with kindness mm. and also guilt and shame I don't know if they're feeling the guilt it feels like a really nice thing I did but I just want to be clear that it didn't come from a place of love that's <laughs> <laughs> She says, what a, on strange, the, she's, what a strange distinction. I just want to make it very clear that these nice, thoughtful things I did for you were not out of love. Make listen. that perfectly clear. They were not. <laughs> I, I am not the foundation of mental health. It's not what I said. This is a journey of self-discovery and authenticity. And authentically, that was a move of anger. Well, you know what was a journey of trying to discover authenticity (laughs) was David's journey. (laughs) And the episode we just heard. Yeah, it's really the wrong episode to talk about my... (laughs) No, I think it's the perfect episode. My hateful behavior. (laughs) To me, what I was thinking was... How okay, let's go during, back to you during as, the episode or the, during the episode. During the episode, okay. I was thinking to myself, were you at 18 having the level of like thought and intention to be able to sort of create this journey of discovery? I did not have that capacity. I don't believe at that at that moment in my life. I mean, I was hitchhiking and <laughs> I I saw me a few bus stops. Several months after my 18th birthday was the first time I had been discharged from treatment after two and a half years of relapsing in and out of treatment. And I was on my own with no fucking life skills. I don't know if my compare. I mean, I was I was at 18 is when I dated myself and bought myself that ring. I mean, that's pretty that's a big self-discovery. <laughs> I thought so. So 
I don't think my brain has ever worked like David and I don't think my brain will ever work like David's. His brain, I mean, I relate to the depression. I relate to some of the self-seeking things, but I think he has, what I can hear from him is a person who has always been extraordinarily introspective, even if he, I don't, I don't even know if he knows he was introspective, but I can just sense that from him. And he continues to be like, that's his state of being. He's curious about the inner workings of self. He goes on this Africa trip to find himself with these rules. There are things that are similar in my 18-year-old life of going and doing things, but the mental state was worlds away from where his was. Mm -hmm. We have, uh, David was kind enough to give us a promo code for uh, you to do some work with him, which Ashley, it's a real shocker. What is the promo code that people would use to take advantage of this special offer? It is courage to change. So the word courage spelled normally, the word to T-O, change as in. Change your clothes. They stink. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I will do that. We'll have the what the, the links that you need to use in the show notes. But if you'd like to take advantage of that, you'd like to do some, you'd like to explore, do yoga with me. I like the model a lot. I think it's really cool that the idea is there's a lot free, but then there's hopefully folks who can kind of help support that, who have the financial means to do that and give the opportunity to people who maybe aren't in a position where that could uh, be the case. Yes. Do yoga with me.com. Now uh, we're rooting for you this week as we always, always, always are. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with this week? Friends, I would be extraordinarily grateful if you would leave us a rating or review. If you get a chance, it takes two minutes. We so, so appreciate it. It's podcast currency. Also, if you have any specific questions that you'd love for us to do in our Q&A, please feel free to send them to podcast at lionrock.life. You can also send us messages on Instagram or Facebook, anywhere you can find our social or email. Please send us notes. We are happy to do Q&As that address your specific questions. Again, thank you for being a listener and we'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.